DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, Hidden Consequences, a new report assesses the climate damage from the war in Ukraine. And of course we could have called uh, the Russian Ministry of Defence and say, hey, you know, can you give me, uh, send me your, your fossil fuel bill and how much uh, diesel you've been using. I doubt that they uh, would have uh, given an answer in the first place and if any, then it probably would be false getting crowded, Ukrainian refugees in Georgia face competition from their Russian counterparts. And political reset. Is Erdogan looking to change his positioning towards the West? Those stories and more coming up on the programme. Now, before we begin, a quick word about the geography of the Deutsche Welle. DW's Bonn studios are located along the banks of the Rhine River. To our left, we have the imposing Deutsche Post skyscraper and to our right, the UN campus and conference centre. This week, important talks are being held next door as the UN hosts a climate change conference ahead of the COP28 summit in Dubai in December. One of the reports that's been launched on the sidelines of this summit caught our eye. It's called Climate Damage Caused by Russia's War in Ukraine. And I am delighted to be able to welcome its lead author, Leonard de Klerk, to the studio. Leonard, your report attempts to put numbers to the ecological impact of the war in Ukraine. But just before you were due to officially launch it, the Novokakova Dam burst, releasing what President Zelensky has termed an environmental bomb of mass destruction. How does this affect your calculations? Well, we mainly focus on emissions of greenhouse uh, gases. And uh, as such, this does not directly impact our calculations. However, We are also looking on the reconstruction of uh, post-war Ukraine. And definitely this dam has to be repaired. It's a vital element of the, you know, local infrastructure for water supply, cooling water to the nuclear power reactor. This will mean cement and steel, and cement steel means carbon emissions. This area that is is being flooded in the wake of the dam break, so southern Ukraine, Mm -hmm. um, down along the Dnipro River. Is this an area that you know? I visited it um, because I've been living uh, three years in in, in Ukraine and took the opportunity to to visit uh, uh, many uh, regions. Yeah, it's a beautiful area because it's, you know, it's along the the Dnipro uh, River. Um, There are some marshlands. There is on the eastern side there is also a natural reserve so it's it's uh it's a beautiful area you're still talking about it in the present tense at some point you know the 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 water will reside again and then then we can clearly see what damage has been done many buildings simply cannot stand the water flow um so probably a lot of housing would have uh, will have collapsed nature itself probably is very resilient but we should not forget that there could also be that a lot of landmines that have been laid there in the past uh, months during the war they've started drifting um and nobody knows where they will end up so that's uh, that's also in the in the aftermath of it uh, will be quite a, a challenge to to clear that area for example of uh, uh, landmines mm. 
I'm just so conscious that, I mean, we're talking about things that are happening on a, a scale that is almost unimaginable. And the decision to embark on this sort of accounting of the footprint of war had quite a personal impetus for you. Yeah, that's correct. I've been, um, uh, for almost, well, more than 20 years now, I've been involved in um, projects to reduce uh, uh, the emissions of uh, greenhouse gases, mainly in, in Russia and, uh, and Ukraine. I've been traveling a lot in the in the region and also I know the Donbass very well because uh, we we mainly focused on the heavy industry like steel, cement, power, coal mines which have, you know, all Soviet all built in the Soviet uh, days, very inefficient, enormous uh, emissions of uh, of greenhouse gases. So until 10 years ago, I've been working there and see how we can reduce uh, the emissions. I took uh, a little bit of a, a break in uh, my carbon activities and, uh, and moved uh, uh, to Hungary to build a an, an, an climate neutral holiday resort together with my, uh, with my husband. But we still kept contact, you know, we still have friends and, and former colleagues in, in Ukraine. So when the war broke out and we are not that far located from the border with Ukraine, uh, we opened uh, our house for, for Ukrainian uh, refugees. And so basically that's how we got dragged into the war. And climate accounting was the contribution that you felt that you could make? Well, actually, I mean, the first weeks were just uh, chaotic because we had so many, you know, uh, hosting so many Ukrainian refugees, providing them with food and then mattress that they could, you know, have a proper sleep after being days, sometimes uh, more than a week, sleeping in their own car on their way to Europe. But at some point, point I was thinking you know what can I do more to help Ukraine and giving this is my expertise I thought well why don't we uh, also look at the, the impact on the climate of this uh, is of this war because Ukraine already from the very beginning started to record all the damages foremost it's the human suffering uh, secondly it's the damage that's being done to the country itself the schools the uh, well the dam um, as, as the last recent example, but also they're focusing on the, the damage that's being uh, done to, uh, to the environment. But that's mainly local uh, damage. Um, but the damage that's done to our climate, which goes you know, through additional emissions of greenhouse gases, is basically hurting all of us. So what I also, with this study, uh, try to do is to show that, you know, this war doesn't only impact Ukrainians, but Im impact all of us. How did you go about getting your data? What was that sort of mission that you'd set yourself like? Mm -hmm. And what kind of obstacles did you come up against? When I got this idea, I just called some, some old colleagues of mine and I, I proposed this uh, idea and, you know, let's start working on this uh, together. And, um, you know, Googled around about, well, conflict emissions, um, has this, you know, what's the literature there? What has been done before? Are there any methodologies? And it turned out to be there is none, basically. This has never been done before at such a comprehensive scale. So we had to do very, yeah, look at basic things like what are the carbon emissions of a, of a, of a missile? And I mean, in order to get that kind of information, are you phoning up the National 
military? Are you phoning up weapons producers and saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. hey, give me your figures? I mean, th- this is a notoriously secretive sector. Yeah, yeah. If we, so if we, if we specifically talk about the military, uh, the warfare emissions, as we call it, that's the hardest nut to crack. And, and of course, we could have called uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense and say, hey, you know, can you give me, uh, send me your, your fossil fuel bill and how much uh, diesel you've been using? I doubt that they uh, would have uh, uh, given an answer in the first place, and if any, then it probably would be false. Um, so there, we we simply had to use uh, you know proxies. So we 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 had several approaches, trying in particularly because that's the the biggest chunk is the you know the emissions from fossil fuel use, diesel, uh, but also kerosene for fighter jets, and um, we did uh, manage to to make estimations, but. We made clear in a report, these are just estimations. A proper uh, estimation uh, can probably only be done after the war is over. Now, based on your estimations at the moment, we're looking in terms of the first year of conflict at a uh, an emissions footprint equal to that of Belgium. Correct. Um, only 19% of that is accounted for by actual warfare so the petrol needed to power tanks etc where's the rest of it coming from the biggest chunk is the future emissions for the reconstruction of ukraine i may i may be clutching at straws here leonard but when when i read how much of the emissions were emissions yet to come emissions that will be associated with uh, reconstruction I, i did feel a sort of a sense of possible hope in that these are not emissions that are already locked in and there is a certain amount of oh dear you're, you're, you're I, I can see this isn't gonna <laughs> you're gonna destroy this hope but i mean i no, I, no, I, I guess i guess the question is you know are these emissions locked in or is there scope for doing things better building back differently and having a reconstruction that is as environmentally friendly as possible absolutely and that's also a positive news in general ukraine you know they're fighting a war, uh, a war t- uh, for survival, but even considering that they already are preparing for this, you know, green uh, reconstruction and, and and build back better. Given the you know the enormous amount of, of work that has to be done, you can't expect that everything uh, that will be done will be emission free. That's simply uh, you know technically. Uh, uh, unfeasible, but at least we can try to to minimise them as much as possible. I was joined by Leonard de Klerk, lead author of the report Climate Damage Caused by Russia's War in Ukraine, which was funded by the European Climate Foundation and the Environmental Policy and Advocacy Initiative in Ukraine. Now, over 42,000 people are thought to have been affected by the flooding in southern Ukraine this week. Millions of others have already been displaced by the fighting. The Georgian capital, Tbilisi, has become a popular destination for Ukrainians fleeing the conflict, but has also been the first port of call for over 100,000 Russians fleeing the draft or political oppression back home. And, as Levi Bridges reports, the arrival of so many Russians in Georgia is making life much harder for Ukrainian refugees. Early in the morning on the day Russia invaded Ukraine last year, a young woman in the Ukrainian city of Melitopol had a vivid dream. 
there is a huge container of gas and like I'm opening it and after everything is burning and I'm really scared of fire. As the flames leapt up in the air, she opened her eyes. The nightmare was real. Through the window, I saw that there were lots of explosions, and I was scared. What's going on? Melitopol was one of the first cities occupied by Russian soldiers after the start of the invasion. This woman I met, who didn't want to give her real name because she's worried about being targeted by Russia, was too afraid to try fleeing the war zone to government-controlled Ukraine. Maybe if I go somewhere, there will be some explosions and uh, I will be just dead. They shoot in the cars. I didn't want to risk with my life. So instead, she and her boyfriend fled east on a much safer route toward Georgia. The only way to get there was through Russia. On the road, they kept getting stopped at checkpoints by Russian soldiers. They ask you many questions like, why did you come to Russia? Do you have some relatives or friends who serve in the Ukrainian army? They check your phone. After making it over the Russian border, they crossed the Caucasus Mountains and made it to Tbilisi. Roughly 25,000 Ukrainian refugees have settled in Georgia since the war started. Because Georgia is a relatively poor country, they receive far less assistance here than they would have if they reached the EU. Many Ukrainian refugees in Tbilisi rely on the support of volunteers. In a back room inside Tbilisi's train station, volunteers have started a new school for the children of Ukrainian refugees. It's recess and kids are running around with dolls and blocks. One little girl named Margot throws a blanket over my head. You're a ghost now, she says. Monika Yeronoska is the school's director. The children are coming to us already hungry in the morning. The parents, they got stuck in Tbilisi. Some of them don't have money, some, some of them don't have even passports, so they cannot leave because they were running from Ukraine without anything. Yaronoska says it's really difficult to find enough money to keep this school going. Life became much harder for Ukrainian refugees in Georgia last fall, after Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a draft that enlisted men to serve in Russia's army. So many Russians fled to Tbilisi after the draft started that rents more than doubled, and Ukrainians here have been forced to live in substandard housing. <laughs> At an old Soviet-era dormitory where factory workers used to live, I meet a Ukrainian woman named Marina Radovich, who came here with her mother and two children after the war started. They all share a cramped one-bedroom apartment. There's no shower, and they don't even have a lock on the door. Radovich says her old apartment back in Ukraine was nothing special but at least it was theirs. Many Ukrainians in Tbilisi are now at risk of getting evicted because Georgian landlords would prefer to rent to Russians who can usually pay more. The situation has gotten so difficult in Georgia that some Ukrainians are leaving the country. The young Ukrainian woman I met in Tbilisi who didn't want to give her name says her sister also came to Georgia. But recently, her sister went back to their home in Ukraine a war zone that's occupied by Russia because she could no longer afford to rent in Tbilisi. 
My sister tells me that there are not explosions, but when I open the news, I can see there are some explosions. It's uh, very difficult to live without connection to your family. Back at the new school for Ukrainian kids in Tbilisi, several mothers rehearse a Ukrainian song for an upcoming event. While they sing, I meet a Ukrainian woman whose grandchildren study here. She wishes the U.S. and Europe would offer Ukraine more powerful military support so they can win the war quicker. She says not enough people in the West fully appreciate the fact that Russia might attack them if Ukraine isn't successful in the war. Some Ukrainians in Georgia are looking for ways to America or the EU. But what they really want is to go home after the war ends, back to Ukraine. Their homeland might be far away. But as they sing, it's obvious how close Ukraine is to their hearts. Levi Bridges, DW, Tbilisi, Georgia. If you have feedback you'd like to share with us on that or any of the other items in the programme, then the address is insideeurope at dw.com. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Finally, this half hour, we look to Turkey, where re-elected President Recep Tayyip Erdogan must now continue his diplomatic balancing act between Russia on the one side and his Western allies on the other. Ankara's ongoing veto of Sweden's NATO membership bid is a critical test of its loyalties, and so far the tone has been a harsh one. But, analysts suggest, Erdogan may be looking for a reset of his relations with the West. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has taken the presidential oath for a third time. And analysts predict foreign policy is central to his goal of making Turkey a 21st century power. Asla Aydintashbash is a visiting fellow with the Brookings Institution in Washington. We're likely to see a continuation of this non-aligned strategic autonomous idea of Turkey's place in the world. President Erdogan sees Turkey as a rising power. He's built his campaign on this. 21st century, he says, will be the century of Turkey. And that Turkey is not a loyal, card-carrying member of the transatlantic community. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg attended Erdogan's oath ceremony last weekend. 
he used the occasion to lobby for Turkey to lift its veto of Sweden's bid to join the Transatlantic Alliance. Ankara has accused Stockholm of sheltering members of the outlawed Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK. It's listed as a terror group by Ankara and its Western allies. I've just uh, finished a productive meeting uh, with uh, President Erdogan. Speaking to reporters after meeting with Erdogan, Stoltenberg acknowledged security threats posed by the Kurdish rebel groups like the PKK. But he insists Stockholm has addressed Ankara's calls to crack down on terrorist organizations attacking Turkey. No other ally has faced more terrorist attacks. Sweden has taken significant concrete steps to meet Turkey's concerns. This includes amending the Swedish constitution, ending its arms embargo, and stepping up counter-terrorism cooperation, including against the PKK. Important new terrorism legislation has come into force just a few days ago. So Sweden has fulfilled its, its obligations. Ankara's ongoing opposition to Sweden's NATO bid comes as Erdogan is pledging to deepen ties with Moscow. Russian President Vladimir Putin was among the first to congratulate Erdogan's latest electoral success. Hussein Baja is the head of the Foreign Policy Institute, an Ankara-based research organization. They are uh, good friends, it's true, and uh, Turkish-Russian relations for the next five years will continue to be stronger, I would say. Putin is definitely very happy that he has his friend as president again for another five years. Putin gave Erdogan significant financial support during the presidential election, deferring billions of dollars in energy payments to support the beleaguered Turkish economy. But analysts suggest Erdogan is looking to consolidate his electoral success with a reset with Washington. US President Joe Biden has in the past criticized Erdogan, even calling him a dictator. Serhat Kuvench is a professor of international relations at Kadahas University. Erdogan got what he wanted or what he needed before the elections from Russia. He got a deferment of payments for uh, natural gas. Now probably his expectations are more centered in the West than in Russia. There is this expectation that now that Erdogan was elected, that is a proof of his you know, democratic credentials. So based on this perceived renewal of democratic credentials, probably Erdogan and his associates will seek reinvigoration of the relations between the two countries on the basis of a better reception of Erdogan in Washington, D.C. Probably an official visit. This is what they are expected. Improving Turkish-U.S. relations is widely seen as helping to ease financial pressure facing the economy. But the poor chemistry between the country's two leaders remains an obstacle, says Asla Aydentashbash of the Brookings Institution. Turkey is a challenge for Washington and it will continue to be a challenge. The relationship is less than uh, ideal. In fact, it's pretty dysfunctional. Uh, it starts at the top with President Erdogan and President Biden hardly talking or hardly ever meeting, even though they've met on the confines of major international summits. I think that the lines of communications between the two are just sort of very poor. That relationship could ultimately be tested over Ankara's stance on NATO enlargement and growing Western calls to impose sanctions on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. 
something until now Erdogan has refused. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul. If you enjoy listening to Inside Europe and find our journalism useful, then do consider helping us out by giving our podcast a rating or a review, or even better, why not recommend us to a friend? This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. In the next half hour, mountains to cross, African migrants congregate at Italy's border with France. How long are you here in, in, in Vendimiglia? Four. Four days? Uh, Four days. And you want to go to France? Yeah. And you tried already? Tried, France. And then they sent you back? France, Italy. Try. Push. How many times? Two. Two times. Plus, dangerous destination, meet Europe's first ever Erasmus student in Gaza. And reassessing Rammstein. Could this be German music's Me Too moment? That's all still to come. From Bonn, Germany, you're listening to Inside Europe. Now, dig out your sunscreen. We're off to the Italian Riviera, to the picturesque town of Ventimiglia, to be precise, with its historical old town, popular Friday market, sandy beaches and mountainous backdrop. This, however, is not a tourism report, and the people we're about to meet are desperate to leave. Ventimiglia is the last town before the French border, a border many of the 40,000 or so immigrants that have arrived so far this year in Italy wish to cross. The Paris government has sent 150 extra gendarmes to try and thwart their attempts, and crossings are becoming increasingly difficult, as Angelo van Schaik reports. Ventimiglia train station. As soon as you enter the station, you see migrants waiting for the train to Menton, which is the first city on the other side of the border in France. On the platform here in Ventimiglia are French gendarmes and Italian carabinieri. Far is from Sudan and has repeatedly tried to cross the border into France. How? By, by car? By, by, by train? train? Yeah. Train. Okay. Yeah. And you try it every day? Yeah. I try it almost one week, four times. They will catch me and bring it back again. And you're going to try it to today, tomorrow again? Maybe tomorrow, not today. Because I came last night, I tried last night, they brought me back today. Far is one of the thousands, maybe tens of thousands, 
of African immigrants trying to cross the border between Italy and France. By train from Ventimiglia to Menton, as stowaways on trucks or simply by foot. Serena Regazzoni runs the Caritas Center here at the train station. Every border is penetrable, but the risk of doing so has increased. Since 2016, 42 migrants have died while trying to cross the border into France. The last victim was a man from Afghanistan in February. He hid underneath a truck, fell off, and was then run over. Every morning between 9 and 11, Caritas distributes free meals to migrants at the station. Today, around 40 and 45 people are waiting in a queue. They're first registered, name, age, and country of origin. The numbers are increasing, says Serena Regazzoni. We distribute around 170 meals a day. Ten days ago, it was only 70. The increase is partly due to growing numbers of migrants arriving from the south of Italy and also because of tighter controls by the French. Every day, the French send around 50 migrants back to Italy. A small room with two long tables where people can sit down and eat their meal. I'm here every day, and today I've made pasta with tomato sauce, vegetables and a boiled egg, around 180 servings. The new arrivals eat more. They take a second helping, and the regulars come in for their daily meal. This Caritas Center is the only place in town where migrants get assistance, says coordinator Serena Regazzoni. At the moment, there's nowhere in Ventimiglia where migrants can seek help, where they can eat, sleep or wash themselves. This is the only place providing one hot meal a day and medical assistance. But we only have limited space where vulnerable migrants, such as women with children, can stay overnight. For the rest, there's nothing, not even from the government. Due to the lack of assistance, migrants wander through the city and look for shelter wherever they can. This is the River Roya, and above me, is the uh, Via Aurelia viaduct and um, the road to Via Aurelia dates back to Roman times. Beneath it there's an improvised camp. I can see some 20 tents with a few dozen African migrants squatting here. Some sleep on mattresses like these three young men gathered around a little fire. Can I ask you something? Francais? English? Okay, so where, where are you from? Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia. Okay. How long have you been here for now? Uh, How long have you been here for? How long are you here in, in, in Vendimiglia? Four. Four days? Uh, four days. And you want to go to France? Yeah. And you tried already? Tried France. And then they sent you back? France, Italy. Try. Push. How many times? Two. Two times. You tried it with him? Yeah. Two, two days, three. In France, police soldier. Mm -hmm. 
Like all of the African migrants, they reached Italy by boat. They landed on Lampedusa and made their way to Ventimiglia. And are determined to reach France. So they'll try again. I'm now back at the train station to head to Menton, which is on the other side of the border in France, to see the situation there. The first stop on French soil is Menton Garavan, and the gendarmes have taken young men off the train. To me they look like they're from East Africa, the Horn of Africa, uh, the Somalians or Ethiopians. The French have arrested six of them. They're questioned and their documents are checked. I guess they're around 18 years old. 16 years old, says one of them. If the migrants are minors, they have the right to stay in France. If they're older than 18, they're sent back to Italy. But the French police admit it's very difficult to verify their age. If they don't have any documents, then we have to guess their age. That's very difficult and based on our experience. The migrants are loaded into a minivan and taken to the police station. These six young men will probably be sent back to Italy, like in 90% of cases. But despite tighter controls on the border and the Rome government's pledge to reduce the influx of migrants, they keep arriving in Italy. So far this year, there have been four times as many arrivals as the same period last year. And without a real solution to the problem, the authorities will continue to play ping-pong, pushing the migrants back and forth across the borders. Angelo van Schaik, DW, Ventimiglia, Italy. DW is part of the Info Migrants Network, a news and information site for migrants at every point of their journey. You can find it at infomigrants.net. Now, when you think of the EU's Erasmus Academic Exchange Programme, you probably think of a bunch of 20-somethings with different European accents having the time of their lives in a happening European metropole. I'm here about the roommate ad. You know, we want life to be cool together. We want good vibes between people. I understand the problem. We are already from very different countries. You know, I'm Italian. Tobias is German. Lars is Danish. Wendy is English. So that is Espanol. Immortalised in the early 2000s by the French film L'Auberge Espagnole, the Erasmus programme has been going strong for 35 years, offering European university students the opportunity to experience student life and learning in another country. But there are some surprising and even challenging destinations. Take one in particular that the University of Siena in Italy has been offering in recent years, a place at the University of Gaza. In 2018, medical student Riccardo Corradini decided to take it up and until today he's the only student ever to have done so. He agreed to be filmed for a documentary about his experience which came out recently, entitled simply Erasmus in Gaza. Danny Mitzman has been speaking to Riccardo and also to one of the filmmakers, Chiara Avesani, about Riccardo's unique Erasmus experience. 
Salam alaikum, Kefala, Ricardo, nice to meet you. I am the first one, but I'm sure that I won't be the last one. <laughs> In 2018, Italian medical student Ricardo Corradini was thinking about specializing in emergency and trauma surgery, but he wasn't sure he'd be able to handle it. Ricardo knew the only way to find out was by experience, and there could be no better test than a hospital on the Gaza Strip. So it come from here, yes, and then explode like this. What you see there after shootings or bombings, you will be never prepared to this kind of situations. Looking this kind of wounds, damage to the human body because they are completely unnatural. So it's always disturbing. A lot of people were injured and shot. So I had the chance to, to learn how to manage um, gunshot wounds. And is the only place where uh, I saw this because in Italy uh, I had never. I was scared, yes, but I was more curious. I was more curious about a situation that was really different from the place I lived. Erasmus, for most of us, is a carefree, fun cultural learning experience. But sending your son off to the Gaza Strip? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, I can say that maybe they were more worried than I was. Yeah, <laughs> my parents. <laughs> but, you know, it was not a trip that I was doing alone with a rucksack on my back. I was doing uh, an European program uh, proposed, accepted and offered from the European Commission. And so uh, I was comfortable with this because I, I, I felt to be protected. For filmmakers Chiara Avezani and Matteo Del Bo, Ricardo's story was instantly intriguing. Matteo was already in Gaza Strip filming another film and he heard that there was going to be the first European student of the Erasmus project, actually the first student from the Western world coming to Gaza to study. And so we decided to see who this person was and we just went to Siena University and met Ricardo and we were really pleased by the fact that Ricardo was moved by a true human feeling. He's not an ideological person. He is a real doctor. So he didn't really know what this experience in Gaza was going to look like. And he approached it with an open mind. We have a visitor from Italy, uh, student. Shukran to everybody for welcoming me. You know, every Western person usually goes to Gaza to teach. But he's the first one that goes as a student to learn from uh, local doctors, local surgeons, local professor from the Islamic University of Gaza. And I have to say that actually the medical level of there is very high. But as well as the academic, Erasmus is a social and cultural experience, something that Ricardo wholeheartedly embraced. Shukran. 
about everything. But you take him to Italy after. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> it was really nice to see how people tried making friendship with me because they are not used to um, see people, foreigner people. So they just try to talk with me or go around with me, have a lunch, have a brunch together just to talk of what's going on outside. But even sharing their culture, it was really nice. And the beginning was maybe a, a little bit tough because it's a place that has not only a different culture, but even the religion. So how they divide the day about their schedule. So it was a complete revolution in my daily life. You know, since I was young that I make this for Ramadan. <laughs> Do you need help? I'm perfect. I arrived there with no one. And then I found a lot of people that they were really really happy to help me doing things and bring me out and show me things. I had really deep friendship and I'm still in, in touch with them. My name is Adam, Adam Jad. Okay. Adam Jad. Okay. I am, this is my card. Do you have a card? Yeah, of course. Ricardo's flatmate Adam in particular, who invited him for family meals and treated him like a brother. It's very moving for me to listen to Adam speaking about this experience that he describes as like the best experience he's done in his life because for them Ricardo was the only experience of the outside world they have ever done in their life so they really welcomed this experience as uh, a way to have a window to the outside world but four and a half months with a documentary team filming pretty much everything can't have been easy. They stayed with me for a long time, but not for all my Erasmus. And they were like living with me. They, they were just like friends in, in my experience in the end. They were not forcing me to do anything. They were just following me. A documentary is always building relationships with people you don't know. Uh, in this case, while we were building relationship with Ricardo, he was also building new relationship with uh, local friends. On top of this, you have to consider that Gaza Strip, as you know, is um, a blockade. So no one is allowed to get in and no one's allowed to get out. So the only real, really the only way to uh, shoot this film was to enter with him and being locked in with him for four months and a half. Capturing the terror of bombardment, Erasmus in Gaza shows some of Ricardo's most dramatic moments, but focuses above all on the transcendent power of human connections. In my opinion, Erasmus is cultural diplomacy, and I would like to be part of this. With my experience to be a little uh, brick in the wall, you know, to try to fix these problems, because there are many ways of course and there are uh, the normal diplomacy made by governments and ambassadors and ministries and stuff but there are even culture cultural ways so erasmus in my opinion could be a chance to face it Aya, my ribs 
They look like little um, pum pumpkins. You know what do we call it in, in English? Birds. Birds? Yeah. We hope that with this film we were able to show a friendship story between someone from a Western country and those two million people that are living in this blockade. And I believe it's something useful for Gazan people to see outside, useful for us to understand what Gaza really is, probably useful also to open people's minds on both sides of that world. This moment actually it's really, really, really like uh, you win a million dollars. Gaza is not just a place of misery and troubles. It's a place where people live, where people have dreams, and where people want to improve their lives and their society and their culture. People in Gaza are open-minded in a lot of cases, and they want to share their knowledge, their feelings with foreigner people, and they are not scared, they are not scared of foreigner people. In some cases, in our society, a lot of people are scared from foreigners. They are not. Would he like to go back? Miel Mia they will say in Arab, it means 100%. And if you want to check out the trailer to the Erasmus in Gaza film mentioned in Danny Mitzman's report there, then it is available to watch on YouTube. And whilst we're talking about checking things out, I'm very excited to be able to share with you the brand new trailer for the latest series of On the Green Fence. Here is DW's very own Neil King to tell you more. They're literally everywhere these days. But whether you like them or not, modern day life would be impossible without plastics. By 2050, we will produce between three to four times as much plastic as we're producing today. But with growing production comes increased pollution. Plastic waste is accumulating in our oceans, rivers and forests at an alarming rate. It's not just being found in our food and water, but also in our bodies. The idea that microplastics could cross the blood-brain barrier it's just, it makes you shudder. On the Green Fence's new series on the world's growing plastic problem and solutions. Coming to you later this June, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Last night, I spent several hours trying to get my head around a German cultural story which has become simply too big to ignore. 
It focuses around the lead singer of the German megaband Rammstein, which has long courted controversy with its pseudo-fascistic choreography and its violent and misogynistic lyrics. Now, the accusations levelled against Rammstein's lead singer, Till Lindemann, are at the moment just that, accusations. However, because of the prominence of the band, the seriousness of the allegations and their sheer volume, this is a story that potentially has far-reaching consequences, not just for Rammstein itself, but also for the German music industry as a whole. And, as such, DW has been reporting on the story. To find out more, I spoke to my colleague from the culture department, David Levitz. Right. Well, when we go way back, it appears, talking to people who are close to the band, that there have actually been rumors for quite some time about frontman to Lindemann having sex with uh, young women who were intoxicated or even assaulting people. But it really became public and it became news late last month when a young Irish woman who was at a concert of theirs in Lithuania went to the police with contusions and she said that she had blacked out. She believed that she had been given at some point a date rape drug. Um, and she also said that she was recruited basically to go backstage uh, at the concert and meet to Lindemann who pressured her to have sex and got very angry when she refused to. So that was the first time that it really went public. Since then, two German media outlets combined forces and they interviewed over a dozen women who uh, corroborated basically that there seems to be an entire system of recruitment to get young women backstage uh, to party with Till Lindemann, the front man, and potentially have sex with them. These are women who say that they were recruited uh, by a woman close to the band, either online on social media before the concerts or at the concerts themselves. And two of them uh, have said that they believe that they were given date rate drugs at some point. Two of them spoke about non-consensual sexual acts with Till Lindemann, including one who believes she was drugged, she says. And she said she woke up to find him on top of her assaulting her. Um, now, and, and since that report last week, uh, more and more women have been coming forward. There was uh, uh, a video posted this week by a YouTube vlogger who's quite well known here in Germany and the YouTube scene who talked about how she says she went to a Rammstein concert and she was recruited, she says, to go backstage to an after party and says that uh, when she got there, instead it was a small room filled with young girls. She said eight young girls who appeared very young. They appeared to be intoxicated. She said that no one was checking their ages. And she was told, she said, that this was the pre-selection of girls to sleep with to Lindemann. So at this point, there are so many stories, um, most of them uh, through anonymous interviews, but there are there are so many stories that go in similar direction that they've become too many to be ignored. And you have to remember that Rammstein is Germany's number one band. They, uh, they have hands all over the world. They're Germany's number one uh, music export uh, in the present day. And a lot of these young women look up to Till Rammstein as their idol. They are, they are absolute fans. So, of course, these are just allegations. There are no criminal investigations thus far. But uh, in, in any case, there's, there's obviously a power dynamic at play here. What about political reactions, David? Have there been any of those? 
There have been um, actually many politicians here in Germany are talking about it. Uh, different cities, well, in Munich and in Berlin, where they're also slated to uh, perform. Uh, there's been discussion of whether the shows could actually be banned. Of course, because there's not a criminal ex uh, investigation so far, that was that was quickly uh, put to aside. But Germany's culture minister uh, Claudia Roth has said that these allegations need to be taken very seriously. Germany's family minister. House has uh, also talked about making concerts a safer place for women in general. Right. And, and that's a very important point, I think, because uh, whilst these allegations are focused around Till Lindemann, um, there is very much, I think, a conversation to be had about structures uh, within the music business that uh, enable um, the in, in enable dynamics uh, to uh, to develop which can be um, very dangerous for young particularly female fans um, do you think that this could be the start of something bigger could this be the birth of music's me too moment in Germany right well that, that question is certainly being asked uh, um I mean, in the absence of a criminal investigation, what we are seeing is certainly a conversation uh, among Rammstein's fans, but also in society in general, right, about what's been known for a long time as groupie culture, this this idea that young women go backstage uh, and party, probably get intoxicated and often sleep with the bands that they idolize. And this is something that's been part of music culture, of course, for many, many decades, and that's often been taken for granted. And I think that what we're seeing now is that people are starting to reconsider that and look back over all these decades of the music industry and, and rock culture and wonder, was this ever really right to begin with? David Levitz was speaking to me from DW's Culture Department in Berlin. And that is all that we have time for this week. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, of course, if you want to drop us a line with feedback or suggestions, then our email address is insideeurope at dw.com. This programme was produced by Helen Sini, with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineers Wiesam Dahlmann and Gerd Georgi. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn. Germany. Germany.